Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today is an exciting day. We're going to have a great time. It's going to be serious, but it's going to be fun, and it's going to be unique because we're going to be sitting down with a guy who I would say that I have known at least 25 to 30 years, which scares me because that means I am approaching elderly status, but... I've known him a long, long time in New York and in California, and his name is Paul Provenza, and he is a tremendous actor, comedian, producer, director, writer, has done amazing theater, just a really, really special guy. And to top it all off, if it's not obvious through a lot of the people that I interview, an incredibly, incredibly nice, nice, nice man who doesn't seem to say too many discouraging words about too many people, at least not in public, but in the privacy of his own home, probably a lot. A guy who has <laughs> always been one of the best-looking guys in show business. Before I go into the story, I just want to thank you all so much. Today is a strange day, you know, to walk into the room... And there's a lot of people here. And the audience is growing. It's incredible. We've actually doubled our size. I and think he, I'm a draw. Paul is a draw. He was a little nervous because he walked into the room and he thought, I'm in the wrong room. And so did I. That's always an interesting thing for anybody. You ever walked in the wrong conference room and you open up the door and you're like, oh, 
geez, sorry. And all day long, you feel so embarrassed and sick to your stomach and anxious that you walked in on something like this. You should never feel anxious, never feel upset, and never feel awkward after you close that door. Because remember the time that you were in a conference room and somebody opened the door and popped their head and said, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong conference room. How long did you think about that person? About three seconds, and they were out of your mind forever. And so just remember the next time you go in a conference room like I just did here and you walk in and you feel awkward, it, it goes away. Anyway, thank you all so much for coming. You guys are amazing here. I appreciate it. And thank you all out in the audience listening. Again, without you guys, this show is nothing. And because of you guys, we were invited to the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival again for the second time in three years. And we'll be there on Friday, July 29th at noon at the Hyatt Regency. And you can get tickets if you're up there in Montreal. It'll be an amazing live show in front of an audience. Hopefully you'll be there. So as I look at Paul Provenza, this is what I think immediately. First thing I think is something personally. I'm in New York. I'm having a great time. I'm running a comedy club, the Boston Comedy Club in Greenwich Village. And I start getting down there from Boston, meeting people. There's a lot of great comedians there down at that time. Just amazing, amazing, amazing guys. And he is one of them. And I have a girlfriend that I brought down there from where I was in Massachusetts. And she's a wonderful person, beautiful, exciting. But as some relationships go, they don't go the distance that you want them to go or however happens. And that's fine. And then the next thing I know... I meet her for a coffee, and she says, I just want to tell you, I've been going out with somebody, very interesting guy, very nice guy. Who's who that? Uh, Paul Provenza. <laughs> I said, oh, well, that's really good. I'm glad you followed me up well, because clearly that was not a lateral move for you. You, you, you <laughs> clearly moved up. This is this guy. You could, you could circumcise a small Jewish boy off of this guy's stomach. 30 years ago or 25 years ago. <laughs> and he was like the most unbelievably nice, chiseled, good-looking, funny guy in the New York comedy scene. Normally, when you're in a personal relationship and it ends and then the girl or the guy is going out with somebody who you perceive to be at a higher level than you in terms of the evolutionary chart, you sort of get a little bummed out. You're like, oh, Jesus Christ, okay, well... I guess I got to just do what I got to do. I was the happiest I'd ever been in my life. I was so excited. I, I got up and from the table and I hugged this girl as tight as possible. I said, thank God. She said, what are you talking about? I thought you'd be mad. I said, I'm not mad at all. No, I'm not mad because this is the nicest guy in the world. He's sweet and he's funny. And if ever I'm going to stop going out with somebody, I want them to be around somebody who will improve their life, not ruin their life. And can I so, just say, can I just say, so far this intro, could you just please show up at my memorial? Because <laughs> this is this is uh, insane. So I started watching Paul on stage, seeing how he worked, and just an incredible, incredible guy. And then he started booking these acting jobs. And back then, you're in the clubs. People's goals were very simple. Be a regular. Be a regular comedian. And for Paul, that wasn't his mantra. 
his mantra was he knew at a very early age that he wanted to do everything that he could do. If you're an artist, you think of yourself as a Ferrari and if it has 12 cylinders, you got to use every cylinder as an artist. You got to figure out how to use everything you have. But when you start as a comedian in New York City, a lot of times people aren't thinking of that. They're just thinking, God, can I be a regular at the comedy cellar? You think Louis Ferrando will ever book me to open up a week for Cedric the Entertainer? God, that would be a dream come true. Not so for Paul. Paul, you got the feeling, as I later learned to get to know him, that he was a guy who from the moment he was born and came out of the womb knew that he wanted to do a lot of different things. He just didn't want to do one thing. If Paul Provenza just did stand-up comedy, he'd be one of the most successful comedians out there. But he decided that he wanted to do other things like act and direct and theater that he's done, which we're going to talk about, is just amazing. And so when we looked at him around New York and we saw him, we didn't really understand what was going on because most of the people who were working the clubs, except for the occasional person who came in who was an actor and had booked something and came in and did some sets, then you'd see it. But Paul would come in and he'd do a set and you'd just say, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm starting this theater production on this off-Broadway show. You're what? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing some theater there. You never heard of a comedian doing theater. And then you'd see him three months later, he'd come back and he'd be doing stand-up. And man, you're doing so great. Look at this. Your comedy's unbelievable, Paul. Yeah, yeah, I got to take a little break because I got to go out and I got this series regular on this television show. You series, what? Yeah, I'm on a television show. What are you doing? Are you? I'm, I'm acting, Barry. <laughs> You're acting on it. Yeah, yeah, I'm acting, Barry. I got to go back to L.A. and act on it. And then you'd see him another time later on in his career. <laughs> and you'd say, Paul, how you doing? What's happening? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing this play that I'm working with Steve Martin. You're what? Yeah, I'm working with Steve Martin. Steve Martin uh, put this play together and I'm doing the lead role in the play. You're doing the lead role in the play with Steve Martin. Yeah, yeah, Barry. So I'm gonna not going to be able to do as much stand-up here when I'm doing this. And every point in this guy's career, which we're going to go over, there's a different thing that he does or creates. He's equally adept at working for people when he gets paid a check, when he's answering to the man, as he is when he is the man, when he creates his own shows that are amazing, like The Green Room that he created, which was on Showtime for many years, amazing show. What I loved about the show, what was so incredible if you never saw it, is the fact that the show would start and the camera would just follow you and you'd be coming in, like walking into a green room and you'd be in the middle of a conversation, even know where that conversation started or ended. And the way the show ended, the same way. Somebody could be making this amazing point about politics or show business and the camera would just go out and be gone and out the door again. Just as if you'd have walked into the green room at one point and left another time. And it was controlled chaos. It was incredible. It was like what every show wanted to be but couldn't be because they had to conform to a formula or a system. But Paul Provenza created something where there was no system. And so all through his career, it's unbelievable, just uses those cylinders. And I don't believe 
there's one cylinder that this guy has not used. I just want to share with you everything that this person has done. He's booked series regulars on television shows that were iconic hit shows. He's been an actor in a play where Steve Martin basically wrote and created the concept of. He's done films with amazing actors, some of which have won Academy Awards or been nominated. He's written a book that's been an incredible book called Satiristas that sat on my coffee table until I had to move my coffee table. He's created a television show, okay, Green Room. He created a show with Troy Conrad called Set List, where you're doing comedy without a net, which has basically appeared all over the place. He's done every festival there is known to man. It's just unbelievable. He hosted a show called Comics Only. He's done stand-up on every single television show that had stand-ups on television. There isn't anything that this guy hasn't done. Can I also say, I just I also do lighthouse work. <laughs> if anybody needs some dusting, some organizing. And he does lighthouse work. So anyway, what I'm trying to say here, and what you'll hear in his bio in more detailed fashion, is the fact that I'm sitting across from the guy who is not a one-trick pony, is not a person who just says, hey, I'm just going to do one thing. He's a guy who assesses everything he has within the fibers of his body and goes out and he's able to do everything. And he works really, really hard to do every single thing in that cylinder of those cylinders really, really, really well. So if there's any lesson to be garnered from this cold open, which you're probably asleep by this point in time. I'm starting to fade. <laughs> is the fact that if you're out there, whatever you do, I don't care what office you're in, where you're working, what you're doing, you don't just have one talent. There's not just one thing that you can do. There's many things you can do. I'm not saying there's going to be 10 different things that you can do like Paul Provenza, but there's more than one thing that you can do. So if you're in a job and you think, oh, God, I'm a little nervous. What am I going to do? How am I going to leave this? How am I going to get better at this? Look into yourself, figure out what you have and what your talents are, and start working on them and working hard on them. And I can guarantee if you put all the effort in and all the desire and all the push and all the mental capacity you have in heart and soul, like Paul Provenza has done, and are a nice person, you're definitely going to have the kind of career he's had. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. 
It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you are still awake, we got a great, great show for you today with Paul Provenza. And without further ado, I am going to introduce him in a way that will certainly take time. So (laughs) here goes. Paul Provenza has been recognized in the world of TV, theater, and stand-up comedy for more than three decades. Funny, intelligent, provocative, and challenging, his stand-up comedy has been critically acclaimed as bright, edgy, and honest by journalists across North America and the UK. An accomplished comedian, a classically trained actor, and now an innovative filmmaker, his versatility has taken him all over the entertainment map and the map of the world. He graduated from UPenn with the first theater arts degree in the history of the university. Taking a leave of absence from college, he headed to London to study with the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts and joined the Classical Repertory Theater Company. At the age of 20, he became one of the few Americans given the rare privilege of playing the role of Romeo on the British stage. He has been a guest on every major talk show featuring stand-up comedians and was also a favorite on Live with Regis and Kathy Lee, Politically Incorrect, and has performed for an audience of over 80,000 at the University of Florida's Homecoming, as well as open for musical superstars such as Diana Ross, the Beach Boys, and many others in Las Vegas and on national tours. He has also appeared in almost every festival in the world numerous times in Montreal, Toronto, Chicago, Glastonbury, Rotterdam, Amsterdam, Melbourne, and many other festivals. In TV, Paul wrote, produced, and starred in the unique comedy talk show series Comics Only on Comedy Central and was honored with two Cable Ace Award nominations for Best Entertainment Host and Best Comedy Series for the program. He also wrote and starred in the experimental pulp comics for the network where the New York Times compared him to Lenny Bruce. As an actor, he was a series regular on Empty Nest, The Facts of Life, 
and co-starred with Keanu Reeves and Andy Griffith in the critically acclaimed CBS movie Under the Influence and was one of the stars of CBS's Northern Exposure, Showtime hit series Beggars and Choosers, as well as being a recurring guest on the NBC Emmy-winning drama The West Wing. In theater, Paul starred in the off-Broadway hit Only Kidding, for which he received the Theater World Award and a Drama Desk Award nomination for Best Actor, and had the great pleasure of working with Steve Martin, playing the title role in his hit play. Picasso at the La Pan Agile in New York, San Francisco, as well as on national tours. Paul directed and co-produced with Penn Gillette from Penn & Teller the unique and controversial documentary the Aristocrats, featuring a virtual who's who of comedy stars across the spectrum, including the late Robin Williams, George Carlin, and also Whoopi Goldberg, and many, many more. The film broke box office records for documentary features and set a record for the highest price paid for a documentary film at the Sundance Film Festival, and its DVD debuted at number one on Amazon and grossed over $40 million worldwide to date. In the literary world, Random House published Satiristas by <laughs> Paul, a noted art portrait photographer, Dan Dion, with over 70 intimate personal interviews, including the last interview ever given with George Carlin before he passed away. Paul also created set lists, Stand Up Without a Net, with his producing partner Barbara Roman and Detroit Troy Conrad. Conrad. Launched all over the world, and GQ Magazine called it the best thing to happen to stand-up comedy since the invention of the microphone. And was later produced as a television series in the UK and was a 65-episode order of a web series for Nerdist. One of my favorite things that Paul created, as I mentioned, was The Green Room. It started as a live show and was later seen on Showtime for many years with amazing guests like Russell Peters, Ron White, Martin Mull, Penn Jillette, Judd Apatow, Bob Saget, Richard Belzer, and Jonathan Winters in his last TV appearance ever. You should check out those episodes, but now you're going to check out my guest, the man. I'm so happy he's here. Please welcome a guy who's about to wake up again, Paul Provenza. I got to go, man. I, I'm, out <laughs> I'm out of time. <laughs> <laughs> I should be so much more successful if you if you if you did this intro in every meeting I ever had. I should be so much more successful. Yeah, seriously, you got to say this at my memorial. Um, will you put that in your will? I I'm making it publicly. I'm, I'm public, publicly acknowledging it right now. We are legal witnesses. Tell our audience the most impactful memorial you ever went to, and some story from it. That will be very, very impactful. Well, to you us. know, you know, uh, the past few years has been there's been far too many memorials. Uh, um, I thought Gary Shandling's memorial was fantastic. I was there for that. It was really beautiful. But um, the thing to preface the comedians' memorials, they're hilarious. I mean, it, you actually do. I hate to say it, but you actually do judge it by how funny it is. <laughs> and um, and Gary's was hilarious. Robin Williams was was beautiful, and um, Bobcat Goldthwait was um, uh, uh, MC, I guess, kind of, sort of, uh, and he turned it into absolute hilarity about everybody coming up, you know, it, it, a, a competition of grief over losing Robin, and he was hilarious talking about how this next person is, you know, <laughs> is going to say that, you know, I knew Robin before you knew Robin, and all that sort of stuff. Um, um there's just been so many. Richard Jenny's memorial was unbelievably hilarious and and 
really touching. It's almost like it, it's a little counterintuitive. It's almost like the funnier the memorial is, the more touching it actually is, because that it really is the best way to honor somebody who's who's had a life in comedy, like some of the people I mentioned. Um, yeah, they're pretty great. My favorite thing was at Richard Jenny's memorial when um, uh, uh, George Lopez was talking to uh, Jay Leno, and Jay was going, "Listen, I'm really sorry about the blah 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 blah," and George Lopez went. Jay, you know, I, I'm not Paul Rodriguez. I'm I'm George Lopez. <laughs> <laughs> and Jay was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that stuck with me. <laughs> oh, shit, man. You can't, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> and so out of all those memorials, tell us a story that stuck with you that might not just be funny, but be touching and unique and special that we weren't privy or most of us weren't privy to being there. You know what? I, I, I have a story like that, but it's not memorial related. Is it okay if I move off of that? Of course. This is a fantastic story that I've, I've told. We a can pretend of you heard of the memorial. Yeah. <laughs> I think it relates to everything that your your podcast is about, which is the journey and, and what really matters as you go through this process of flotsam and jetsam that, that is a life and show business. Uh, um, this is a story that Penn Gillette told me about when Penn and Teller first started appearing as a duo. You know, originally they were a trio called the Asparagus Valley Cultural Society, and the third member was a very uh, sort of avant-garde musical artist. The same person that named the movie Krippendorf's Tribe named that group? <laughs> that's a good... That's I, You might be right, I don't know. But uh, uh, so what happened was that uh, the, the musician... Uh, decided that he was going to leave. He didn't want to be in show business, and he, so he was going to leave the group. So Penn and Teller decided that they would just continue on as a duo, Penn and Teller. And one of the first gigs that they had was in Atlantic City. And uh, so they were playing in some lounge or some venue in a hotel in Atlantic City. And it's their first time going as a duo, so this is like a, like a, a really important milestone. And they're looking through the paper, what's going on in Atlantic City, and they see that Steve Allen and Martin, uh, uh, wait a minute, Marty Allen and Steve Rossi, Allen and Rossi, are appearing in a little restaurant somewhere in town in Atlantic City. Not a big showroom somewhere, just they're literally playing in the back room of a restaurant. And uh, I know most of your listeners aren't familiar with Allen and Rossi, um, the 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 least complimentary way to describe them is they were a poor man's Martin and Lewis, but they were actually brilliant and hilarious. And if you, if you're my age, Penn's age, close to your age, you're a little younger than I, um, growing up in the sixties and seventies, I think so. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, uh, growing up in the sixties and seventies, Alan and Rossi were on every television show. They were on every game show. They were on every variety show. They were on every singer's special that they did every year. They, Marty Allen and Steve Rossi were household names. They were ubiquitous. But, of course, nobody knows who they are anymore. And um, uh, even as far back as this story, very few people really knew who they were anymore. Their star just completely faded. So they're like, let's go see Allen and Rossi. And they go and see him, see them. And they're playing in like the back room of some Italian restaurant or something like that. And people are eating their meals, maybe 50, 60 people there. And they're eating their meals. And Alan and Rossi are performing. And this is the very beginning of Penn and Teller as a duo. 
And Pandon leans over to Teller and he says, you know, in 30 years, this could be us here in the back of an Italian restaurant, you know, off the strip. And uh, as he said, in 30 years, this could be us. And the way Penn described it, he said, Teller just kept looking at the stage and didn't say a word. And about a minute or two minutes later, he just leaned over and he went, I'm okay with that. And that story really struck me. It really struck me because it, it's a reminder that, you know, there was a time when all we wanted to do was get up on a stage and make people laugh. The idea of being a comedian, the idea of entertaining audiences, the idea of telling jokes, and that's what you do for a livelihood, was such a dream and such a fantasy. And when we all started doing it, it was like a dream come true. And that story just really drilled home that 30, 40 years later, you know, we forget that. And that's really what it's all about. And uh, I thought it was, it was a really beautiful beautiful no. story and and it resonates with me because that's a big part of my journey was getting back to understanding what really mattered what i really cared about and what really made me happy and i realized that after you know decade and a half two decades two and a half decades that simple purity was difficult to find and i went on a really really conscious journey to get back to it so that's an amazing story. Who can not love that? Being a stand-up, there's nothing better than performing in front of a group of people that are there to see you and want to see you, whether it's 50 people or 50,000. Mm. It's just you want to know that they're there and they appreciate what you're doing. And, yeah, and, and so. it's just, you know, it's, it's really hard for us to not forget that, you know, that's really what it's all about, that we're actually living a dream. We're actually living our dreams. Everybody who started doing stand-up, certainly from my generation, started to do stand-up because they, it was a dream. They had to do it. They needed to do it. They wanted to do it. And, you know, when I started, it was before there really was a middle class in comedy. Just before the comedy boom happened in the early mid-80s, um, there really was no middle class. I mean, you were either very successful or you were just getting by. I happen to know the story about your first time you ever did stand-up comedy where you were waiting around until three o'clock in the morning oh, yeah, at the yeah, improv yeah. yeah now back in new york the improv was at 44th and 9th it was a place that you wouldn't bring your worst enemy i mean it was like <laughs> a, it was a place that was run down it was rickety it was the stage was in the corner uh, how often do you go to a comedy club where the stage is in the corner it um, was a real old school jazz blues club brick wall ceiling just caked with decades of cigarette smoke and what i believe uh you used to go there when you were a teenager or a late teenager and you had stuff to do you had to get up early in the morning but you'd have to go and you'd have sometimes you take a ticket sometimes you put your name on a list and you didn't know when you were going to go on and you'd be there in the crowd just waiting for hours and hours and hours. And I'd love for you to tell our audience this particular story. Well, uh, um, just a little more background on the club. Back, back at that time, which was mid-70s, I was, I was still in high school at this time, um, early to mid-70s. Uh, back at that time, uh, the place closed at either 4 a.m., which was the legal time, or when the last person left. 
but because it was right on the corner of uh, Hooker and Pimp Central, Forty Fourth and Nine, Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was Mark Schiff used to say on Tenth Avenue, you got you got guys dressed as women. On Eighth and Ninth Avenue, you got women dressed as guys. On Eighth Avenue, you got horses dressed as dogs. <laughs> and it, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so because it was it was that neighborhood in the dead of winter. There would always be a couple of people in the back of the room that could be hookers or pimps just coming in to have a drink and to warm up. So that was the audience that a lot of people ended up playing to at like three in the morning. Uh, anyway, so this one night um, uh, uh, I was waiting to go on and it was about it was about three or three thirty in the morning. And there were still like maybe four or five people ahead of me. This was the open mic Sunday nights. And um, I went up to the MC and I said, um, listen, I was just wondering if uh, it's at all possible. It's not my number for a few, but I was wondering if maybe, maybe I could get up earlier than I'm meant to go up because I have school in four hours. And the MC just cracked up and brought me up next. Uh, but the great part is I got to tell him that on The Tonight Show when he was hosting. It was Jay Leno, who was the house MC for many years at the New York Improv. Um, in fact, Jay... You'd always know when Jay was in the house because they'd be parked out front. There'd be like a, a Bentley or a Rolls Royce or a Ferrari or like an antique, uh, you know, old Hudson or something. Because uh, Jay was a mechanic in Boston. He worked on these high-end, rare, exotic vehicles. And he used to drive to New York to do his sets. He would tell them, I'm, do I'm taking your car for a test drive. I'm really going to open it up and take it for a test drive. And he would drive to Manhattan, double park it, MC the show, and then get back in and drive to Boston. So those were crazy times. Unbelievable. Tell our audience some of the comedians that you ran into, that you ran into or you observed performing on that crazy stage at 44th and 9th yeah and well my, my, my peers at the time were everybody from uh you know jerry seinfeld paul reiser carol leifer kathy ladman uh, uh rick overton um uh boy there's so many i can't even pull them out of thin air um pretty much everybody that was a headliner in the comedy boom which followed uh, uh, Brian Regan used to be there quite a bit, although he was more of a Long Island guy. That was the other thing. It was a little Long Island group. And uh, and then the comic strip opened on the Upper East Side. Catch a Rising Star opened. Actually, Catch opened first, then the comic strip. And then and then that was a whole other little clique. Everybody had their own sort of home club. Uh, Dennis Wolfberg. The late uh, Dennis Wolfberg. The late, late great Dennis Wolfberg. Um, you got to... Uh, Go on YouTube and look up Dennis Wolpert. Yeah, amazing, um, uh, amazing. Alan Havey, uh, uh, um, Colin Quinn. Uh, I could just go on and on. Elaine Boozler was still there. Jay Leno was the MC, which was you rose to become MC. You know, now the MC on a show is generally the least experienced comic, but at the time it was the most experienced comic who was the MC because it was also the only spot that got paid. So to, to throw a bone to somebody who'd been there for years working out, you let them make 50 bucks or 60 bucks by MCing on a Saturday night. So Jay was the MC. Um, Glenn Hirsch was unbelievable. Uh, um, uh, Franken and Davis used to come in all the time because they were working on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Um, that's Al Franken, Franken and, and Tom Davis. And Tom Davis. Every comedian who emerged 
in the comedy boom of the 80s was hanging out at the improv. Also, by the way, mm-hmm. some cool cats like Rodney Dangerfield would always come in and go on. Robert Klein would always come in and go on. Whenever Carlin was in town, he would come in and go on. Andy Kaufman. I watched Andy Kaufman develop into Andy Kaufman. It took me a long time to get him. I didn't get him for the longest time. And when I did get him, it was like somebody hit me in the head with a hammer. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, this is genius. You know, so um, uh, I had the rare privilege of being heckled by Andy Kaufman while I was on stage one night. It was the early days of, I think, the genesis of what became Tony Clifton. Um, uh, oh, Rich Hall, by the way, was was uh, was there quite a bit. Um, Tony Clifton was Andy Kaufman's alter ego, oftentimes played by Andy Kaufman, but in the specials played by Bob Zamuda, who created Comic Relief and was Chris Albrecht's comedy team partner doing sets when Paul was there in 79 and 80. That's right. And Bob Zamuda was the bartender when I became a regular at the improv. And Chris Albrecht. Chris was managing the place. He had bought in. Managing the improv and later became the president of HBO and now now the president of Stars. Uh, By the way, you know who the Kochek girl was at the improv when I passed auditions? Uh, um, Kitty Bruce. Really? Yeah, Lenny's daughter was uh, the Kochek girl. And I didn't real I didn't know who she was until many years later. I was like, Kitty? Like, Kitty, Kitty? Kitty, the Kochek Kitty? Yeah, I had no idea. When you were hanging out at the improv in those days, it doesn't seem like those were the group of guys that had any game whatsoever, except for you. <laughs> I didn't have game either. No game. No, I didn't have game. It either fell into my lap or I, or I just moved along. But, um, but fell into your lap? Yeah, uh, literally. But, um, well, see, that's the interesting thing about, like I said, the people that started comedy at that time, that was before there was any middle class in comedy. So when you got into comedy, it was a real passion and it was a real need. You know, like Richard Lewis talks about this a lot, about how he absolutely needed like oxygen to get on stage and and perform uh, um, and find his voice and express himself. Uh, uh, There was a real need. You didn't do it for reward. You didn't do it for... Uh, oh, you know, someday maybe I can have a sitcom and be the next Freddie Prinze, or someday I could be a movie star. You did it because you wanted to get on a stage and make people laugh. Everybody had dreams and aspirations, but that's not why they did stand up. So nobody had game because everybody was a loser. Everybody was an outcast and an outsider. Everybody needed to do comedy because they weren't normal. You know, we, we, we didn't have social lives, per se. We didn't have game, as you put it. it. It was comedy that gave us all of that. You know, comedy was our way of taking whatever liabilities we had in life and turning them into currency, turning tell, them into assets. Tell me three comedians that are working today, that are relevant today, that I'm not saying that are newbies, but are gotten their limelight in the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Tell me three comedians that are the closest in personality and makeup to the core group of, like you say, misfits or people right. who just all want it back then. Right. That's a really interesting challenge. Uh, uh, I, I would say the easiest one for me to zero in on is T.J. Miller, who is just all about the work. He's all about becoming the best that he can be. Uh, um, he. he it's almost as if he doesn't care about career. He cares about the quality of the work and doing interesting new things every time he, every time he gets an opportunity. And he's doing an amazing job yeah. on yeah, Silicon he's Valley. Really, like, really his scored. character has just become so much more huge. Um, uh, TJ, I think, is a person like that. Um, um, 
Kamel Nanjiani, also similar context, also from Silicon Valley. But I know my relationship with TJ, uh, with uh, Kamel is very different. I knew Kamel uh, when he was still living in Chicago, in Chicago, just starting out as as a comedian. And in fact, I worked with him to develop and directed a solo show with him at the Lakeshore Theater, where I was inv I was involved with programming the Lakeshore Theater, which was a short-lived but very very exciting and um, important. Uh, comedy venue uh, and that's when I worked with Kamel so uh, Kamel is another one who just he, he has a sort of manifesto for himself he's very clear on what he doesn't want to do and what he doesn't want to do is what remains after what he doesn't want to do and and he's very much about just becoming the best comedian he, he can be um, I think people like Kyle Kinane I think people like Rory Scovel I don't know what the hell Rory Scovel is but it's genius I don't know what he is he is a complete original. Um, that, I think Bo Burnham is. is very much of the same of the same ilk. Bo Burnham has a very very uh, disciplined approach to becoming the best Bo Burnham can be. For those of you who don't know, Bo started doing songs on his bed <laughs> in his in, in his, his bedroom, in his yeah, bedroom yeah. and releasing them on YouTube, and millions and millions of people passed it on and he actually got stand-up dates concert dates uh, yeah, his before first, he before his, his first his set. first live appearance was headlining at just for laughs in montreal yeah never did stand-up before never appeared live before yeah but i know that he just it's an amazing story and it just lets you know that just keep creating and putting stuff out there and unfortunately it doesn't always work for him he was one of those guys where it worked right away. And if you meet Bo Burnham, if you ever get a chance to meet Bo Burnham, guy's like six foot six, and he is not the kind of guy who in person is is going to engage you or be comfortable engaging you. He's a very, very reserved guy, and he doesn't oftentimes make eye contact. But it's weird. It's like the stuttering person who goes into the shower and sings right. like yeah. opera. Yeah. He just goes out there and he engages everybody and he looks in everybody's eye and he gives the performance of his life. Well, he also has a very interesting scenario uh, in the way he works right now because he also, when he first started performing, he started performing at Montreal Just for Laughs Festival and I actually brought him into the Lakeshore as well. But most of the performing that, the early performing he got um, turned out to be festivals he would, you know, go from one festival to another because people would see him and go, this kid's amazing, and they'd bring him to another festival. And so he had uh, very early on discovered that you can create stand-up as full one-hour shows, not just going and working out in clubs and working out 10 minutes and 15 minutes and adding a new joke, you know. So he started the opportunities that were in front of him encouraged him to start creating pieces that are really sort of beginning they have big beginnings middles and ends like each one hour Bo Burnham show is about an idea so because his opportunities weren't hey come and do this showcase spot for 10-15 minutes his opportunities were we have an hour slot at the Edinburgh Fringe or an hour slot at Glastonbury or whatever he started creating for those particular scenarios that presented themselves to him so as a result his stand-up is um, very, very different. It's very, there's something very theatrical about it and something very, and when I say theatrical, I mean in terms of it's, it, it's almost a theater piece with a, a concept and a beginning, middle, and end, and you're taken on a journey through the course of uh, an hour of Bo Burnham. 
So he didn't come from the world of, you know, write a new joke, put it in the act, write a new joke, put it in the act. He sort of conceived things. Um, and I think that's a, a pretty special uh, approach. And out of those three and everybody that you see today, tell me the person that most resembles you in terms of oh, work man. ethic, multi, does many, many, many different things, has the kind of vision that you have. And Wow. I don't think I know anybody well enough to saddle them with that awful comparison. Um, it's really hard to pin that down, and I'll tell you why. Because the landscape is very, is, the landscape is very different now in comedy. You know, when back in the day, when I met you and all those people we talked about from back in the late 70s, early 80s, pre-comedy boom stuff, there really was not much of a landscape. You did stand-up, you did it as often as you could in as many different venues as you could, and, you know, maybe you went on commercial auditions, maybe you got a guest bar, you know, guest role on some sitcom or something like that, but it was, it was basically stand-up, and that's what you spent your time doing. Now, however, because of all the opportunities that the internet has provided and all the opportunities that technology has provided uh, and the, this, this demand for constantly creating material to throw up online, to, to put into your act, to, to work with other people on an idea that you know, is, a, is, is more collectively driven, all that sort of stuff is very real and that's not any that's not a sort of novelty anymore that's kind of de rigueur so the business is actually demanding that people do what i did the way you described it it was just just all those cylinders the business is kind of demanding that of everybody now so i think probably a lot of people are being forced to do that even if it wasn't their own inclination hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You made a joke about something, but if I know you the way I know you, sometimes your jokes are veiled with a lot of seriousness. <laughs> so you said, when I mentioned everything, that's an incredible thing. I listened to all that but I'm broke. <laughs> yeah. And so oftentimes in this crazy business, you find yourself working on all these different things. They do really well, but then for some reason, the stream of income from each certain thing slows down and it's not there anymore. And then you find yourself as a stand-up. okay, well, how much longer am I going to be able to go out to the clubs 
and what are they going to pay me? And I don't think I'm going to draw like I used to because I've been spending my time doing these other things. And then the agents are only interested in working with people who can put significant amount of money in their pocket. So if you're an artist who, even if you're going to go out and let's say make an amount of money during a year that, that for anybody else who's listening would seem quite significant, like 200000 or 250000 or 175000 the personal appearance agents in this town, they don't want you. They're not interested. They're not interested in making $25,000 off of your 250000 They'd rather book somebody who's going to make $2.5 million, $25 million. Yeah, they're uh, always looking for the, the next can, hot property. Yeah, and so you're in a situation where you don't really have anybody out there who's taking on your stuff, and then you find yourself having to make the calls yourself to the clubs, Yeah, which is not always easy because you're not in a great position of negotiating, and it's a very unique situation that's very difficult. Do you feel like it's similar with comedians who have done really great things? They've had a wonderful situation, but then there's a certain point where, holy shit, there's a bunch of new people, and what am I going to do here? How am I going to make it work? And so what are the challenges that you face and many other artists face who are extraordinary artists? I mean, your bio is literally six pages long. There's so many things in here that I, I mean, this is one of the longest, I'll be lucky if I get to everything. How do you deal with those challenges and how do you figure out how to keep winning? I don't know. Uh, I'm in the midst of trying to figure that out myself. There is definitely an ageism in, in the business in general. Uh, comedy is, is uh, for sure, comedy for sure. Uh, I'll expound on that a little bit in a second, but you know, um, you have to remember that just in, in life in general, there are very few, you can count them on one hand, very few comedians who, you know, like George Carlin in their seventies were still relevant, you know? So at some point it kind of becomes a bit of a miasma in terms of what am I doing? Who's my audience? You know, who's Robert Klein's audience? If a 25-year-old sees a Robert Klein show, they'll love it, but they're not going to go seek it out, you know? Uh, um, uh, so who is your audience is a big a big question mark. If you're a comedian and, uh, okay, I'll, I'll use myself as an example here. I never had, uh, I never had my audience. There was never a time where I could pack a room on my name. You know, a good, at, at, at at best, half the room came to see me, you know, talking 200, 300 seat clubs. At best, half the room came to see me. The other half came to see comedy. So I never had, you know, that, that following that would sort of provide the wind under my wings and then I could do whatever I wanted and there's, they'd always be there. Why do you think that was? Um, I think a, a lot of it has to do with be, uh, because I was all over the map, because uh, there were huge swaths of time where... I wasn't 100% focused on, on going out and working the road, you know. Now, I, I thought things were much better when the green room was on Showtime and they aired it and re-aired it so many times. I guess I was under the impression that you were going out and people were coming to see you. Uh, it's, it's, to, to a certain degree at that time, I mean, there, there, are, there are peaks and troughs in every career. Uh, there are times when, you know, um, like when I was on Northern Exposure, I would get people to come out to see me because... 
when you work in Dayton, Ohio, it's kind of cool to see somebody that's on a TV show you like. So, you know, it was easy to fill up a room in uh, a lot of a lot of places, but that only lasts for as long as that kind of thing lasts, which, you know, that's the thing that um, it's the one thing that I wish I had that I never had is traction. I could never get traction. I could never continue moving up that hill of a career and that artistic, creative hill of doing new things, being interesting, creating new things, and professionally reaching a place where people know who you are, they want to work with you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I never had traction. I would always have a little burst here, and then it would die down, and it'd be back to square one. I've never had anything offered to me i always had to go through the process to to get it i if it's something i created i had to figure out you know how to sell it how to get it it going i had to you know go in that room at showtime and do the dog and pony show you know nobody ever calls like you know the way fx called louis ck and said hey what do you want to do and louis says i want to do this and this is how i want to do it and they go great that's i've never experienced that that to me is a unicorn so um not having traction is uh, a big part of why my career, for lack of a better word, is what it is. Um, but the result of that is that I, I'm at square one for every project. Do you feel at this point there is huge anxiety before the next thing happens? That's the thing. You know, we play the lottery for a living. We really do. You know, we, we like all this stuff that takes up all these pages that you're, you know, so generous to go through all those things that make up my career. They're just more, more tickets, but essentially we're just playing the lottery and we're waiting for the winning number, you know? And sometimes you get that, you know, you don't win the necessarily the big jackpot, but you go, Hey, this one, I won 500 bucks on this scratch off ticket. You know, that happens a lot. Um, uh, all our lives could be changed with one phone call, one deal could change everything, you know? So that kind of, <laughs> that you kind of have to say, you kind of have to remember that that's entirely possible. You know, we're waiting to get struck by lightning and we just want to raise the tallest, most conductive lightning rods we can. Um, uh, yeah, it could change tomorrow. You know, somebody could call tomorrow and say, you know what, we want to do the green room. Here's my network, I want to do the green room great i'm ready to go <laughs> you know i'm ready to go there's a bunch of calls that if they came in i am ready to go <laughs> and that's all i can do you know as well as just keep keep creating and generating because it is a numbers game because as and, and now more so than ever because i was talking about the you know um, this generation with uh, the internet and the various technology and it's really easy now to make a movie i mean you can make a movie with a bunch of friends and a few hundred bucks and you know who knows what will happen uh, all that stuff is 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 real, and so as a result, everybody has to throw as much at it as they can, because that those are the lightning rods, those are the tickets in the lottery. You just got to keep doing that, you know. Um, uh, it is challenging. It is hard. It's especially hard because I've never been this age. You know, I'll, I'll be sixty in a year. I'm turning fifty nine. This this. Um, but you look like you're forty. Well, that thank you for that. But here's the thing: that doesn't help. Because if I'm going out for casting and they're looking for somebody in their 40s, if you put me in a room next to people in their 40s, I'm not the guy. But if I go out for people who are my age, I'm not the guy. So I'm in this limbo and it's just, I'm just used to it. It's just the way it is. 
um, and it's that those kinds of realities, the, the, the reality of everyday life in this business is what drove me to constantly try and create new projects. Because it's like, I can't wait for other people to give me a job. I got to create my own job. You know, uh, nobody's going to give me a talk show. I got to make something so that I can, you know, turn it to the green room. It's just, it's just that kind of thing. I mean, nobody is going, you know, get me a guy who's pushing 60s who never really rose above a B level, and that was back in the 90s. Nobody's looking for that guy. So what am I going to do? So I had this, this epiphany. I had several epiphanies. Uh, but I had one where I, I realized that what was screwing with my head quite a bit in, in, in regard to these kinds of questions was this notion of a linear career, this notion of a career as being something that had a forward trajectory as opposed to something that was what it really is, which is pretty fucking meandering, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I just sort of thought it through and felt it through. And I realized, what if I let go of this idea that, that I'm, I'm climbing a mountain up a straight line or I'm moving forward through time through, in a straight line? And I just started thinking of myself as an artist. What if I considered myself an artist? So the romantic image of that is, you know, I'm in this garage in, in France and I paint a painting and maybe somebody buys it and I get $10,000 for it or maybe it ends up facing the, the wall and it's on the floor, nobody's interested in it for 10 years, but I've moved on and I make this little piece of, uh, this little sculpture out of found objects and maybe somebody buys it for a hundred bucks or maybe it ends up in the Museum of Modern Art. I don't know, but I just gotta keep making art and that's how I've been living my life for like the last 15 years. Um, is just project by project, passion by passion, uh, work that I'm proud of, work that's interesting, work that I think has some layers that compel me at least. Uh, and uh, the career just kind of has to take its shape around that. I mean, I'm, you know, <clears throat> Bob Dylan never did what the audience wanted him to do. Bob Dylan never said, oh, I think I can sell a lot of records by doing this, or I think I can you know, get a, a number, a top 10 hit by doing this. He didn't do that. He did Bob Dylan and people either liked it or they didn't like it. And that's what I've resigned myself to is I just do what I want to do. But that also stems from another epiphany I had, which was um, making the aristocrats was a, was a, a very profound experience for me after the fact I understand it. Um, now, for those of you who never saw The Aristocrats, this is a very unique documentary, which the foundation of is probably the most simple documentary premise that you could ever come up with. It's but just, it's unpitchable. It's unpitchable. It's just a <laughs> joke that uh, has been told through time. And it's not the kind of joke that it seems the same every time. It's like every time somebody tells the joke, it adds more layers and there's different things to it and the whole documentary was that around different people telling this joke and I want to share something of how wrong I was about something and I've shared this with Paul many many times is that I got the call from Paul and a lot of people for my artist to do this documentary and I couldn't understand or see what it was about this documentary that would be impactful or make any difference in the world of entertainment. 
And I basically gave everybody the same letter that Paul gave me and then sent it to everybody who they wanted and told everybody about it. I'm the kind of person I rarely will say, don't do something. I like to have the artist look at things, make a logical decision, pros and cons. And if I really like I'm passionate about something, I'll really go to bat for it. I never went to bat for this project. And it turned out to be the most successful comedy documentary in history, probably. <laughs> yeah, but it is, it's a terrible idea. It's just a terrible idea. And that's why um, there were a lot of things around the experience of the aristocrats that changed a lot for me in terms of the way I view things, the way I feel things, the way I exist in this world. Um, um, but where was it? Oh, yeah. What I realized after the aristocrats which was the first time i was able to reach that zen place of letting go of outcome uh i had no idea what this movie was uh i knew we had like 300 plus hours of great stuff all non-linear no real no i, I it was just lego blocks and um i couldn't for the life of me, predict what it was going to be. And I just sat with Emery Emery, and he is an editor, but he is also a comedian. He has a background in comedy. And when I met Emery, I was like, this is the guy I need to cut it with because he understands the stand-up thing. What did you see of his that made you say he's the guy? Uh, I saw some stand-up. I knew that that he. I knew that he was. You saw his stand-up, and you thought this guy can be an editor. No, no, he was already editing, and he was, very, he was very technically adept, but what spoke to me was the fact that he knew what was funny about dark comedy, and he appreciated dark comedy, and he had an innate sense of rhythm and timing and all the things that come with being a comedian. Guy, he's the guy that I wanted to cut it with. There's another thing which is fascinating about you when you pitched me all this, and this is another reason why I wasn't as supportive about it. Again... I'm wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> no, you were you were making a rational you had oh, a rational perspective on it. Your comedy and you and everything you do is the light. Every single thing I've ever seen you do on stage around the stage is the light. You described this idea to me around this joke. It was the darkness. Right. The joke was dark, dark right, comedy. Right, right. right. But and the movie so, is a the movie. Always, Penn and I always said the movie is a love story. I know. It's it's so joyful. I and know. But, so sweet and so genuine. But, but it wasn't pitched like that. How could you pitch? How do you pitch that? That's part of what I was talking about about being the artist who's putting something together and maybe it'll sell, maybe it won't. You can't pitch any of this stuff if stuff is. You know, we don't live in a business that is. Uh, immediately assumptive or immediately presumes that there is nuance or layers to anything. I mean, everything's got to be cut and dry, easily understood. If you're dealing with a corporate entity or a production company, everybody's got to cover their ass if it goes another step up the ladder. And everything's got to be completely obvious and totally predictable for everybody. Well, that's not where cool shit happens. So, um, you know, none of my stuff, I, I can't pitch anything. And that makes it really, really hard. But I know I'm not whining about that. I've accepted that that's the way it's working. I just need some cool ass people to get it and, you know, make it work. Uh, and I, that I'm spent, I spend my whole life looking for that. And I'm going around the world and, and have met countless people like that who just get it. 
I'll get to that in a second. That's another epiphany. But here's the thing about the aristocrats is that that um, uh, the aristocrats was the first time that I had let go of ex- of, of outcome. And uh, it told me what it was going to be for better or worse, for right or wrong. You could love it. You could hate it. It didn't matter. It was exactly what it was meant to be. And that meant something to me because as a stand-up comedian, I can't, well, I'll get back to that in a second. But anyway, the point is that after the aristocrats and a couple of other projects after that, I realized who my audience is. And I realized that I do everything. Everything that I do is all designed for this one audience. And it's me at 15. That's all I'm making everything for. I'm making everything for me at 15. There was a point probably around my mid-40s or so where I realized, look, you can't be relevant in your 70s unless you're George Carlin. I'm no George Carlin. Very hard to be relevant, to be doing anything significant. You know, it's a young person's game, stand-up comedy. Uh, there are exceptions, of course, absolutely, but I could never be presumptuous enough to think that I was that great a comedian that this is any different for me. The, you know, it's really tough. So I said, well, what's my, what am I going to devote myself to? And I realized, I, I said to myself, you know what? Comedy saved my life. Literally, it saved my life. I was going crazy. There was some crazy stuff around, you know, in my, in my life. And it was comedy that, that, that spoke to me in the same way that for some people it's music, for some people it's writing, for some people it's reading. For me, it was comedy. And I lived, breathed, ate, shat, slept comedy from a very young age. And when I was 15, all I could do was consume and learn and experience comedy. I couldn't get enough of it. It really was like heroin to me. I had to have more comedy. And I would discover, wait, what's this? What's this Derek and Clive? What are they? And that's all I wanted to listen to. And then, wait a minute, Firesign Theater? What is that? And so I would listen to all of it. And the Thalia is having a, 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 a marathon of Marx Brothers movies. Boom, I pack a lunch. My cousin would take me down there and we'd spend 18 hours watching Marx Brothers movies. Uh, you know, uh, I would go to the Museum of, of Broadcasting, which was, uh, what was it called at the time? Museum of, I guess it was Museum of Broadcasting. Now it's television and radio. I go to the Museum of Broadcasting and find videotapes from when videotape was just invented, uh, which was not that much earlier than I was looking at this stuff, and see this guy named Don Novello doing this character called Guido Sarducci around somebody's pool and just riffing on this stuff, and then see that Marshall Efron had some stuff going on. And then, I mean, I was all over the map. National Lampoon, I consumed all of it. I couldn't get enough of everything and anything that... um, that um, Mike, um, what's his name? Michael O'Donohue did, you know, and that took From me Saturday down. Saturday I just, I couldn't get enough of it. And, and I would be listening to the time also, they used to sell cassette tapes of old Jack Benny shows at like 7-Elevens. And uh, I would just constantly listening to those, the most expansive uh, uh, collection of things. I just couldn't get enough about comedy and it's all I cared about. And I realized that everything I'm doing was for me at 15. It was for me. If, if, if I was me at 15 and I could watch the aristocrats or I could read Satiristas or I could go watch the green room or, or, or go to set list, all of that stuff is for me at 15. And that's, that's what I realized is the outcome of me wanting to give something back to comedy that saved my life. Comedy was not an escape for me. It was a coping mechanism. 
it didn't it didn't help me escape from any reality that was hard or confusing for me it gave me the tools to to deal with it and what the green room actually is is me trying to communicate what i felt when i was 15 years old hanging out at the improv and i would see Jay Leno riffing back and forth with Richard Lewis and Elaine Boozler, and I would watch them and I would dream of being part of that universe. What I felt when I heard these people talking, just talk, just being themselves, talking in the bar next to the improv, that feeling led me to understand that this is more than a job, it's more than an art form, it's more than selling CDs or selling tickets. It's a lifestyle, it's a way of existing in the universe. And that's what the green room is. The green room is an effort on my part for people to have some semblance of the experience of walking into that world. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people feel it. A lot of people walk away going, wow, there is something else going on here that's not just about the jokes. Um, uh, so everything's about, everything's for me at 15. Awesome. All right. Let's go way, 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 way back. Tell our audience where you grew up, what your family life was like what your influences were to get into this business and what drove you out of the house at 15 <laughs> to go to a comedy club in Hell's Kitchen. Well, I grew up in a, an Italian family in the Bronx, uh, immigrants. Um, my father was a chemist and in the military. My mother was a public school teacher. Um, Grew up with uh, very close with uh, the big extended family, uh, aunts and cousins and uncles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, every Sunday dinner was kind of an audience, you know? So uh, uh, there was enough people for me to actually start like getting, getting stage time just in my own family. <laughs> Uh, um, some very funny people in there, most notably my, uh, cousin who became sort of a surrogate, uh, big brother to me when, uh, my dad died. My dad died when I was 17 and, um, you know, Larry Moss, who I interviewed here, great acting Oh coach, yeah, yeah. You interviewed Larry. Had yeah. this tremendous thing. He said, every great artist has a hole blown through them. Oh yeah. Well, you know what? And the art form is what fills the hole. And then when the art is done. You have to start filling the hole again because it empties. And, right. and he always says that the trouble that artists have is they never went to therapy or they never figured out how to rectify, how to fill the hole without the art. Right. Well, as hole filling goes, art's pretty good. Yes, you know, it is. A lot of people fill it with a lot of other stuff that goes really bad. Um, um, but anyway, so, so, um, how'd your dad die? Uh, my dad died of cancer that was, uh, probably related to a lot of the chemicals that he worked with in his, in his, uh, he was a chemist, industrial chemist, worked for, uh, Allied Chemical and Sibagaygi and, uh, you know, weren't a whole lot of OSHA rules back in the fifties and sixties. Um, there's layers here because I, I spoke to a therapist once who said, do you, do you, do you have guilt issues here? And I, and I said, why would you ask that? I said, because if your dad were alive, you wouldn't have become a stand-up comedian. He wouldn't have allowed it. You couldn't have had the path you took at all. So do you feel like your father's death made this possible for you? Do you feel any guilt about that? And uh, I went around with that a few times, and I was just like, well, no, I didn't kill him. You know, I, no. 
But that's the thing that's so amazing about life that we talk about on the podcast all the time is these horrifying tragedies happen. Yeah. And if they hadn't happened, then we'd never be doing what we are doing. It's all very Zen, really. I mean, the older I get, the more uh, the more Zen Buddhism kind of makes sense. You know, but cancer is a horrible thing because you're losing a loved one right in front of your eyes, and every day it gets a little bit worse and a little bit worse, and then there's little glimmers of hope, and then it just gets worse again. It is really brutal. Um, and, and here's the thing is that it happened at a Joseph Campbell like mythical moment, uh, um, in that, uh, you know, as, as a 17 year old boy, I'm at the place where, you know, that, that's a mythic moment, uh, uh, challenging the, the, the leader of the pack, challenging the, the old lions. And, you know, I got to stake my own claim here. I got to become who I am. And, and it means a lot of conflict and what have you. And uh, what this therapist suggested was, you know, you, uh, so you're loaded for bear. And then just as you're ready to confront, you know, this, this mythic confrontation between you and your father, you know, he crumbles and dies. So what do you do with all that? What do you do with all that loaded for bear? What do you do with all that? And um, uh, I had a lot of free floating anger for many, many, many years. Uh, um I went through a lot of therapy and I'm Zolofted out of my skull. But, um, um, you know, that was an interesting perspective. And so I had to look at all that. And the interesting thing about it is that I started doing comedy largely because my father was the kind of person he was. It wasn't even driven by his death and me going, well, how do I get out of this? Comedy is, is a tool for it. I had been very, very involved in it before that. Um, because I think it was because I, my nature is very, I'm very questioning. I'm very, I don't really take things that I, I, I I'm a, I'm a question authority guy all the time. I mean, if somebody says to me, it's up is up and down is down. I'm like, wait a minute, let's look at this. Really? Let's take a good look at this and see if that's true. You know? Um, uh, so uh, I spent most of my childhood just being told to shut up <laughs> and just like, you know, there was a bit of, of the old world, children should be seen, not heard kind of thing going on there um, in my immediate household. The rest of my family was, they couldn't be more loving and unconditionally uh, expressive of all of that. So I kind of got this weird balance of, you know, all the things that would have driven me uh, to, to become a heroin addict, you know, were offset by the fact that there was so much love in my childhood from the whole family. It was this huge, huge community of of, of love and affection. Um, but my relationship with my dad was one where when I started to see, I remember being about, about seven or eight years old and, you know, we'd have a family dinner, uh, on a Sunday and afterwards everybody sit around and watch the Ed Sullivan show. Cause my grandmother claims she didn't speak English. I think she spoke a lot more than she wanted to admit, but, uh, she didn't speak English. So the Ed Sullivan show was perfect because you'd have, you know, Leontine Price singing opera and then you'd have a dancing bear and then you'd have, you know, Shecky Green, and then you'd have the Beatles, and then you'd have uh, uh, somebody from some Spanish TV show doing something, you know, craziness, right? So that we, I would watch Ed Sullivan every Sunday night, watch Ed Sullivan, and every Sunday night I would see some guy just standing there doing jokes and had the audience in the palm of his hands. I'd see this big, huge production number with acrobats and this and that and this and that, but then I would see one person just talking and everybody riveted. 
and not just guys too, because they were fantastic, you know, Toady Fields and Moms Mabley and, uh, you know, Phyllis Diller and, uh, um, uh, who do you call it? The, um, Rusty Warren even. I mean, like these, this, this amazing mix of great old comedy art, uh, every week next to the Stones and David Bowie. Uh, and uh, I was riveted to the fact that, oh, wait a minute. So somebody is just talking and everybody is paying attention. It was the antithesis of what my childhood was like. And I think that's what really drew me to it was, was the fact that, well, well, you know, could you imagine having everybody actually choosing, wanting to hear what the hell you had to say? That was like the Holy Grail to me. Uh, also, uh, Jerry Lewis was a big part of that because when I was very little, I had eye problems. I had uh, amblyopia, also known as a lazy eye. I was wearing glasses from about the age of three or two and a half or so and uh, always falling down and bumping into things because three with, with lazy eye, I didn't really have three-dimensional vision. So most of, my, most of my understanding of, you know, this bottle is behind this cup was learned. I would just like sort of get used to the fact that, oh, that's a little bit behind this. You know, uh, I, I literally saw everything I painting. Uh, so I was always knocking things over and bumping into things and falling and tripping and knocking shit off pedestals. And and I remember being very young, maybe five, six, and seeing a Jerry Lewis movie and going, he's a movie star and everybody loves him and he's doing everything that I get in trouble for. And that fused, that screwed up some connections in my brain in a big way. And uh, so that's why I still have a very special place in my heart for Jerry Lewis. So um, this whole fascination with comedy as a kid, again, it wasn't me running away from anything. It was like, oh, I see. So when, when I would fall down and trip and break my glasses or, you know, knock over a coffee table or all that stuff, it was like, it was like nonstop for me as a kid. Uh, I decided, well, I would just try and make it funny. So I imitated Jerry Lewis basically for the first 10 years of my life, you know, um, and I would always just try and get a laugh because that would mean I wouldn't get yelled at and I wouldn't get berated and I wouldn't get, you know, there was, was no real conscious understanding of the fact that, that I have no two dimensional. It was like, I can't help this. You know, it was more of that kind of old world discipline of, well, that's your problem. You got to learn how to deal with it. And don't, don't do it. You know, uh, um, so I would just try and get a laugh. And that's how it all kind of happened. When you were sneaking out to the improv, yeah. did your parents know you were sneaking out? No. It was my cousin, I, my, who I, I mentioned earlier, my cousin who became like my, my big brother uh, when my dad died. He had also lost his father, my uncle, uh, at, a, at a pretty young age. And um, boy, he got my comedy. He turned me on to so much that he was the guy who would take me down to the Thalia for a 24-hour Marx Brothers marathon, you know. I would never be allowed to go on my own, but my parents trusted my cousin Bob. So, you know, um, uh, he would also just buy me books and take me, we would go to opening nights of, of, you know, the opening days of every Woody Allen movie. You know, we'd be there. We'd be the first ones in line watching, you know, play it again, Sam. And, you know, um, uh, he was really into it. And, and I loved making him laugh. And he was eight or nine years older than I. And I would kill with his friends. Like they loved having me around. So I was, was this strange thing where, you know, I, I was playing to 
<laughs> I was playing to crowds that weren't like me and my friends. They were, they were my friends, but they became my friends because they were my crowd. Uh, so that's how that all started. And he, he um, would arrange for me to, um, to get out of the house to do this stuff because we knew that there was, if I went down to the improv, there was a good chance I wouldn't be home until five o'clock in the morning if I was the last person up at, at quarter four, you know? So how do I get to do this? So he was in a band at the time. So he would tell my mom that, you know, uh, my dad was sick. So he would tell my mom that uh, we got, we're going to be in a recording studio. And we're going to be making a demo and it could go all night, but I'll have him home and he's going to be safe and whatever. And they're all great. So that's how it was all <laughs> lies that got me out to my first handful of times going up at, at the improv. Um, and, uh, yeah, I owe him so much. He really, really watered that seed in a big way. Awesome. So tell me how you had the vision after tasting stand up and looking how it went for you. Cause you felt good on stage. You felt empowered. Why you decided to go to college at Penn and why you decided to take a leave of absence there and go full into acting? Well, <clears throat> uh, I chose Penn because I thought my best friend in high school was going to go there. And I thought, well, that'll be fun. We'll get to go together. Uh, he ended up going to Brown and I ended up stuck going to Penn. But, uh, you know, I didn't I didn't know what the hell I was doing when I was picking a college. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't know. I also didn't think at the time that I could actually make a career doing stand-up. So I intended to study pre-law, whatever whatever it might be. I was studying philosophy for a long time, uh, but my objective was ultimately to apply to law school. I was very fascinated in constitutional law. Uh, I studied a lot of it in high school and in, in college as well. So, uh, so I was pretty resigned to not doing stand-up and not going into show business uh, because my father had just died you know, that whole notion of preparing for the future and what if, what if, what if. I mean, I had it right in front of me. I had, you know, my father who lived his whole life about the future had no future. And so it was like all this stuff was swimming around. My mother was on her own. You know, I know what it felt like for me. Uh, you know, the financial stuff, blah, 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 blah. So I was very sort of in this world of you got to prepare for the future. You got to prepare for the future. So I thought, all right, well, I'll get this degree. Uh, um and then I became a Springsteen head and had a ridiculous experience. Uh, I had heard about a friend of mine who I'd always been, been, I'd never let go of it completely. In fact, I was performing while I was at college. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I met Bill Grunfest. At a, Bill at a, Grunfest at, was a guest on the show. He was running that's a comedy club to. called the Comedy Cellar, which is still there today. And it's one of the most amazing places you'll ever go to in New York City. Yeah, I drove around New York looking for locations for that with him because I had my father's car. So we would drive around the city and looking for locations for him to start this comedy club. First time was on 72nd Street. It was on 72nd Street for a couple of years and then he found the, the room uh, under the olive tree. He went down there. We go way back. So, so um, from Penn, I hung out with uh, Bill Grunfest, Ron Darian, whose name at the time was Ron Dagavarian, went on to become a comedian. Um, Wayne Cotter was there doing stand-up. He was at the engineering school. Weird. Anyhow, um, uh, so I was doing stand-up, but I just thought I was doing it for myself, for fun. You know, we were, um, there was no comedy scene in Philadelphia yet. It was just sort of beginning. Uh, but Penn was such a big school that there were tons of audiences, you know? So we would set up shows myself. Oh, oh um, um, uh, Bob Meyer and Bob Young, who went on to run Roseanne and a whole bunch of TV shows and everything. They were there. So Bob Meyer and Bob Young wanted to do some stand-up. They, they were performing live. 
Bill Grunfest wanted to do stand-up. Ron Darian wanted to do stand-up. I wanted to do stand-up. Uh, we actually uh, would put together shows, and then we would have auditions. And in fact, one group that came into audition was this comedy duo, uh, Sam Domsky, who went to Penn, but his comedy partner was actually a Temple Film School, and so they auditioned for us, and that was Bob Saget. So Bob Saget and I go back to like the early 70s wow. <laughs> before, he, before anything. Uh, um, uh, so there was just this weird, again, it's that thing. You just find the people that are like what, you know, you sniff butts until you find the right butts. But you're finding this whole community. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then you just decide to go to the Royal Academy in London. Right. So here's what happens. So we were doing these stand-up shows and I ended up getting back in the, at this time, uh, the drinking age was 18 because this is just post Vietnam and they had to lower the drinking age to 18 because they couldn't ask you to go off and die in this war and still not let you have a beer. So the drinking age at the time was 18. So on, on campus was a Rathskeller, was a nightclub <laughs> where kids would come in and it was a nightclub and everybody could drink beer and just, so I got a steady gig at the Rathskeller. So every Saturday night I would get up and I'd just do, you know, 25 minutes of material new material every week, mostly about the college experience, but every once in a while there'd be five minutes here, three minutes here, eight minutes there, and I'd put it all together and take it to the improv on, you know, six, every six weeks or so I'd go up and audition at the improv. Um, uh, anyhow, I had been keeping it alive for, for just because I wanted to, but completely convinced that I would be going to law school. And, uh, and then I became a, a huge Springsteen fan. Uh, my roommate at the time turned me on to Springsteen and I was like, Springsteen, come on, Springsteen, you know, the cover of Time, the cover of Newsweek. I was like, this is a hype machine. I'm not interested in that stuff, you know, and he's like, no, I think you really want to hear him. Uh, and uh, so Springsteen was coming to town and he wasn't huge yet. In fact, Born to Run, I don't even think had been released yet at this point, maybe just about to be released. Um, um, and so it was really easy to get like second row seats. And uh, my roommate bought me a ticket. He said, you're coming to see this guy. I guarantee you, you're going you're, you're gonna to feel differently about it. And by about the third or fourth song, I was on top of my chair going, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. My, uh, my emotional roller coaster is off the charts with this guy. This music is something else. And then he closed the show by saying, you know what? Because Philadelphia was a big market for him. It was WMMR, Ed Shockey. They were like the first ones outside of the local Jersey stuff that, that really broke him big. And so he had a very special place in his heart, for Philadelphia. And, um, uh, and he just closed this first show that I had seen him at. And he said, you know, I'm really, really fortunate in that I get to live my dream every single night. He goes, I'm, I, this is my dream and I'm living it with you guys here tonight. And I get to do it every night and I can't thank you enough. And I just want to leave you with a wish that, someday you get to live your dreams too. And I went home and I filled out this application. Somebody had told me about this program to study at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts on a tutorial program. You take a leave of absence from school and you go and enroll in another school and then you go over to the UK and you study this thing, blah, blah, blah. And that application had been sitting on my desk for about, you know, a year. And I went home that night and I filled it out and I mailed it. And that's how I ended up going to the, going to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts for a few years. Incredible. Tell us about your first break in show business. It's 1979. Uh, I just graduated from Penn and I had been fooling around at the improv. I had passed, I'd become a regular like a year before that or something like that. Cause I used to go back, I used to drive from Philly to, to New York to do open mic nights and stuff. 
and um, uh, Glenn Hirsch and Rick Overton took me under their wings. They would tell everybody, "This you got to see this kid. He's fantastic." And when and, great comics are telling other people to watch, something, yeah, that means yeah, something. I, I, it just I'll never forget those guys for that, you know. And uh, you know, and then there would be other people like you know, I remember Bells would like banned me from Catch. You know, there were people who didn't didn't care, whatever. So it makes people like Glenn Hirsch and Rick Overton even more meaningful. Bells are ban you from catch. I actually talked to him about it on the green room. We had this conversation on the green room. And, and he said, what? Well, did I really? I said, yeah. He goes, I, it was a coke drugged out binge. Whatever. He goes, I, I'm sure it was. It had something to do with drugs. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, so the, that's the thing. It wasn't, you know, I didn't show up like, you know, wow, this kid's amazing. What a superstar or whatever. Which is what made Glenn Hirsch and Rick Overton really championing me so meaningful because it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like Bo Burnham showed up and everybody just goes, boring, who's this genius, you know? So um, 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 Chris Albrecht was running the place at the time. And, you know, I was young and cocky and wanted to take over the world and everything. And I would bitch and moan about not getting spots because that's how it worked at the time. The way it worked back then was you just hung around and if it went by seniority and if anybody at any point showed up that had become a regular one day before you passed as a regular, then they went up before you did. And so, you know, I can't tell how many times it was like, you know, okay, it's like two in the morning. There's nobody else here. You're going up. Oh, great. I'm going up. And then just like as you're waiting to be introduced, you know, the guy who showed up a week before you arrives they get up and then that's it you're gone you don't get on for the rest of the night happened all the time and so i would bitch and moan and and chris albrecht actually one point he just went like he became kind of a father figure to me with a lot of the same kind of kind of energy too <laughs> he was, he was going, cool your jets cool your jets you'll get up when you're supposed to get up and you know don't be such a cocky motherfucker and you know he really became like a father figure to me so um there was a lot of tension there course he was a hundred percent right about everything so i realized that chris wasn't really a bad guy that he was really just he, you know i was this this sloppy puppy you know making a mess every place and he was just like chill 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 and and how i found out that he actually did respect me was because he was being paid as a consultant for abc television abc because really if you think about it chris albrecht at one point for a decent stretch of time probably knew more about comedy in america than anybody on the planet it's probably true right absolutely you know so um they hired him as a consultant they said um get we'll do a showcase every month you pick you know five or six people every month that you think we should have on our radar and we'll tape them and we'll keep them in our files and for that chris got some sort of a consulting fee well one month shortly after um you know maybe within four or five months of having graduated, I get a call that I'm going to be doing this ABC showcase. So I get up and I do a set and they record it, it goes in the file and I don't hear a word about it. And then about six months later, I get a phone call from ABC going, we need to recast this pilot. It has to happen really fast. Can you come in and audition? They found me off of the tapes that, that they had put in the files. And uh, Chris had already moved to Los Angeles to work with ICM. He was now an agent at ICM representing Charles Fleischer, uh, Eddie Murphy, Sandra Bernhard, um, Larry David, a couple other people. Uh, and when he left to go to LA, he said, listen, 
there's a time where I think I'll be asking you if you're interested in coming out there. So right now is not that time, but if you need anything, call me. My, my door is always open. So I ended up getting this pilot and they go, who's your agent? And I go, I don't know. So I called Chris and I told him the story and he thought that was hilarious. And he went, yeah, no problem. I'll handle it. So he became my agent after that. But anyway, so that worked out and I ended up getting that pilot and which went nowhere, but that was it. I moved to LA because I was, I had that new, new car smell all over me. So Chris was like, this is the time you should come out to LA. So I came out to LA and immediately ended up with a development deal. Um, Keenan Wayans and myself had a development deal together with, I think it was NBC, and that went on for like a year, and so I, I couldn't do anything. So I, I would go on the road once in a while, but I couldn't be on the road all the time because I had to be available to go in for auditions and stuff. Uh, the deal went nowhere, uh, and then I think after that I ended up with another deal that basically meant I was laying dormant for another year or something and pilot here, pilot there, pilot here, pilot there. So which came first, your first role on television or your first shot on a late night talk show as a stand-up? Uh, it was a talk show, but it was not late night. It was daytime. My first appearance as a stand-up on television was on the John Davidson show in, I think, 1980. John Davidson, he was the guy who had that gray circle in his brown hair. Uh, I think he did, yeah. Now yeah. he's all white. Actually worked with him just a couple of weeks ago at the Reason Rally in Washington, D.C. He came out as an atheist in his 70s and was actually speaking and performing at the Reason Rally. It was so great to see him. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. And your first break in acting on television was what? Was this pilot, which um, I, I did with Charlie Fleischer. But that didn't go. Nobody saw it. What's the first thing you did that somebody saw as an actor? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure if it was the first, but it was probably the most meaningful because it was a kind of a dramatic role, um, was the, this TV movie called Under the Influence, where um, I played one of the sons of Andy Griffith, and my brother was played by Keanu Reeves who was this young kid that had just come down from Canada. And it was so funny, too, because we were the whole cast of all these veteran... Um, um, Joyce Van Patten was in it. Uh, all these terrific vet actors been around for years. And we're all sitting around at lunch one day, and Keanu had a couple of his friends come, and they were goofing around and everything, and making a lot of noise and everything. And we all just you know stopped our lunch and looked over and all looked at each other and had the exact same thought. We just thought, oh my God, he's going to be huge. <laughs> we just knew. It was just so obvious this was a superstar in the making. Yeah. Um, uh, but I would say that that was probably the thing that was the most notable because uh, I wasn't, I wasn't, it was a dramatic role for the most part. Amazing when a comedian books a dramatic role. Normally, those are the things that get the most critical acclaim. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You think of Rickles and Casino. Yeah, yeah. Or even before that, he used to be on uh, Twilight Zone all the time. That's right. Normally, comedians get more respect when they do the dramatic well, roles because it's so it's, rare. You know, because everybody sort of thinks in kind of tick box terms. Uh, people are often typecast. But I mean, I remember... It used to be a very common thing to go in and go, well, he's known for comedy. So, you know, what, you know, they, they wouldn't consider you for drama if they thought that you were a comedic actor. So it does open up, you know, a whole world of other people's closed minds that you can do something else. But now it's really common. Now it's really common to see um, uh, comedians do really strong, dramatic work. Tell our audience about your first experience and your first shot on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That was so great. That was just like, I was floating. I was floating. 
I actually flew my cousin out, the cousin that I told you was sort of, you know, the, the, the real uh, farmer that grew this seed in me, my cousin Bob. I actually, f he flew out to be in the audience of that. It was amazing because uh, I got it as kind of a, a fluky thing. You know, that was Jim McCauley. Jim McCauley was, was the talent coordinating it. You say it's a fluke. Carol Leifer was a guest on this show, and she told me she auditioned 25 times for, for the, the Tonight, Tonight show. show. Then, you, then you'll understand that this was a fluke. Um, I wasn't even on their radar and wasn't even interested in being on their radar. I mean, I, I, it was 1983, so I had just been living in Los Angeles for like three years. And, um, I, I, you know, I didn't think it was the time for me to do The Tonight Show. I mean, I fantasized about it and all, but I, I felt like, no, I'm just going to get better and it's going to be, you know, 23. You know, what am I in a rush about? Um, and Jim had seen me a few times and, you know, we chit-chatted and all, but I never said, oh, hey, will you come and see me? I never did the showcase thing. I just didn't think it was my time. Uh, but then I got hired to perform at the after party at the improv was the after party for Scorsese's King of Comedy. And uh, there were a bunch of people who were in the movie, went up and did some stuff. And uh, um, uh, a couple of the older comics that were, that were there you know, went up and made fun of the movie and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but then I, I got up and did a set. And as it turns out, Jim McCauley was there and he just said, I'd like to talk to you about doing The Tonight Show. And I was like, what? Uh, and then, you know, we worked on a set for a couple of weeks and, um, I got bumped off my first two scheduled times to do my first appearance. For those of, uh, the audience that don't know, why don't you talk about the experience of what it's like to get bumped and why comedians are the only ones that seem to get bumped. <laughs> That's true, isn't it? They never bumped the band. You mentioned Wayne Cotter, one of my favorite things. I loved Wayne Cotter as a comic. He was from the Philadelphia area. And he got booked to do Letterman. And I remember he told me about it. He got bumped. He got on again. He got bumped. Got on again. He got bumped. Like four times the guy was bumped. And Letterman at the end of the show would say, we apologize to Wayne Cotter. We'll see him the next time. And I'll never forget the final time that he finally got on. Letterman doing the introductions up front on the show said, you know, our guest tonight is this person, this person, this person. And Wayne Cotter Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whenever the show ran long or something, the easiest one to cut was the stand-up because it's you know, not going to cut the band because usually there's a bunch of them. Uh, they're not going to cut a celebrity because celebrities have lives. So the comic is the easiest one, to, easiest one to cut. It's one person. They only have to pay one person the scale for showing up. Um, $535.60 of happiness. Not back then. It was like $300, $340 or something ridiculous. Um, uh, so the comic would, would get bumped easily. And, and um, which, by the way, is way better than being told to cut your spot down from six minutes to four. I'd rather be bumped than be, be in that place of, oh, my God, now what? You know, uh, anyhow. So I got bumped after my uh, for my first. It was twice. I was bumped twice, and then was my spot. And uh, I didn't know until afterwards that Jim McCauley. You know, a lot of people used to say that Jim McCauley like micromanaged your set and all this and all that. But I got to tell you, my experience was that Jim McCauley actually knew what the hell he was doing, and uh, he really was um, really helpful. Uh, 
but he picked and chose the material he wanted me to do. And then I would go off and work it out. And then he'd come say like, you know, you want me to come and see it? I'll let you know if, if I think it's ready. And you sure, come tonight, you know, whatever. Uh, and um, so for a couple of weeks, I just, you know, worked that six minute spot, worked that six minute spot, worked that six minute spot. Um, and he would come in and tweak it or he would say, you know what? That piece isn't working. Remember that other piece you did about the, would that work? Cause I think I like that better. Okay, great. Work tweak it, whatever. And then all of a sudden after, after two weeks of doing this thing, all of a sudden it wasn't working at all. And I was freaking out. And I, so I called him and I said, Jim, I don't know what's going on. I said, it's just, it's just not working anymore. It's just, it's just like, it's getting nothing now. And I, and I'm really nervous about it. And he went, no, that's fine. He goes, that means it's ready for television. Like what? <laughs> he goes, because television's a whole different beast. And he was on the money. I'm sorry. Maybe it was a fluke, but he was on the money. It was a killer spot. But what I didn't realize was that he had loaded the spot. He he really took care of me. He stacked the deck for me in a way that I didn't understand. I didn't know, but I'm really glad I I, I gave myself over to it. Uh my closing bit, now remember this is 1983. So my closing bit was this hunk on Gloria Vanderbilt. You remember Gloria Vanderbilt jeans were real big in the early 80s. And so she was on television all over the place. And I did this whole hunk about Gloria Vanderbilt jeans. And uh, the, the spot, as I was doing the spot, I, I was killing. Like halfway through, I was like, oh, my God, this is a dream come true. This is I, I could not be, you know, I had that that out-of-body experience where I'm standing next to myself going, you lucky son of a bitch. This is the <laughs> fantasy Tonight Show spot you have ever dreamed of. This is, you know, um, I didn't realize it was going to kick into overdrive. I hit this, now Johnny was loving it. He was really loving it. I can hear him laughing, right? I hit this Gloria Vanderbilt bit. He spins out of his chair and he's kneeling on the platform behind the desk. <laughs> pounding the platform right he gets up i hit another line and he's got his head <laughs> on the wall and he's pounding the wall and i'm like i don't know exactly what's going on there because he's a little bit behind you so you have to kind of really turn to see him and i was like i don't know what, what's going on there but the audience is all looking at him so now i'm killing because of johnny now johnny has taken me you know um, in, in his slipstream so, you know the old adage, if you're ever having a tough time on stage, you want to ground yourself, look at the band, because the band has heard it all, the band ain't flinching, the band is the, you know, the, 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 the safe haven. So I turn and look at the band, the band is pissing their pants, guys are like banging their saxophones <laughs> on the sound guards, and they're, they're howling, half of them looking at Johnny, half of them just enjoying the show. So I, I just shut down to it all, and I just plow through it. And I, it just destroys. Johnny cuts to a commercial break. He comes over to me on, the, on, on my spot and shakes my hand and throws the commercial from there. And after the show, he says, I would have brought you right over to the panel. He said, but uh, Art Pepper, the jazz musician, was on. And he said, he's been bumped twice and he has to go back to New Orleans. So he had to be on the show to, for, tonight. So I couldn't bring you over to the panel. So I was like, oh, okay, well, that's it's kind of a nice little personal Oscar right there. To let you all know the significance of this, Letterman walks over and shakes the hand of the comedians. Right. Johnny Carson never walked over 
to shake a hand of a comedian. Hardly ever. And he brought people over to the couch, I think only six times. It was Freddie Prinz. Stephen Wright. Stephen Wright. Roseanne Barr. Roseanne Barr. Skip Stevenson from Real People. And Gary Shandling, maybe? Believe it or not, a comedian from Boston who's not well known, Teddy Bergeron. Teddy Bergeron, you're right. So you would have been brought over yeah. to the couch. Yeah. And he brought Kevin Meany over to the couch, but Kevin had done a set with a guest host, I think it was either Leno or something, and it was so great that they brought him back to do a similar thing right. with Johnny. Right. So what you had was the next best thing to being there. Right. And of course, in my head, I'm going, oh, you won't, bu you won't bump Art Pepper, but you bump me three times. No, I'm kidding. I didn't really say that. I was just on cloud nine, right? And afterwards, um, Johnny couldn't have been, I mean, he's chatted with me for like 10, 15, he gave me tags to the bits I was doing. I, it was just like, I, I was on cloud nine. And so afterwards I said to Macaulay, I said, I don't know what happened there, <laughs> but thank you. And then he told me the story. He said, I wanted you to close with the Gloria Vanderbilt piece because Johnny's at that time, recent ex-wife, like the, the ex, the most recent ex-wife was like Gloria Vanderbilt, Gloria Vanderbilt's best friend. And Johnny hated her, <laughs> despised <laughs> Gloria Vanderbilt. So he said, I knew that Johnny would, would, would really love that. So I wanted you to close with that bit. Uh, and uh, I feel like I owe Jim McCauley a, a debt of gratitude forever for that because it was great. I mean, it was crazy. I, when I looked back and I saw Johnny on his hands and knees <laughs> banging the platform, I was like, this can't be happening. <laughs> and here's where, so that was a great night, right? And of course the next day phone was ringing off the hook, you know, the, the my price and clubs tripled and they asked me to go back on the tonight show the next week. Which only happened one time with Stephen Wright. Uh, and here's where, you know how people say I don't have any regrets in life? I have a lot of regrets. But the most important one is that, is that I didn't. And I regret it. And I regret it not because of the opportunities that I missed, but because of the reason I didn't do it. And I refused. I said no because I was so scared that nothing could come close to that first night. And I had all these bullshit excuses. They're like, well, you know, let me get something to promote. Cause I, you know, I never considered myself all that prolific. And so like, I don't know how many more of these spots I have in me and, you know, I got a better space them out and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't do it. And the reason I didn't do it was because of fear and insecurity. And that's what I regret. I did not take the leap of faith to just go for broke and see what happens. What was the worst that could have happened? Was it was a mediocre spot? Who cares? That was a relationship and a potential crossroads for me that I didn't take advantage of because I was scared. Wow. And Jim McCauley didn't try to talk you out of it. Yeah, of course he did. Of course he did. But fear is really, really powerful. And did you ever get back on with Johnny? Quite a, quite a, a, a bit later. Yeah, it was a long time. Um, uh, maybe another year or two. Uh, I did it with Johnny, I think maybe four times. And then with Jay, maybe three times. Something like that. I didn't do that many spots. 
Um, uh, you would have. I would have, yeah. All right. Let's go to a little six degrees of separation. I got some <laughs> names. I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Could be one word, could be a sentence, could be a little story. And then we can go and we can tap everybody here on the shoulder and wake them up and they can <laughs> come back out of their coma. You think anybody's still listening we'll to We'll give this? them some popcorn and some Coca-Cola or something and we'll be all set. You know, so people start off the show in the audience here with so much hope. They got great posture. Their phones are put away. They're like in the 90-degree counseling position. And then by the end, basically, they got their phones out. They're yawning. It's like a network taping. <laughs> That's right. Okay, here's the first name. Ready? Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Yeah, Robin, uh, Robin was uh, pretty amazing, you know? Robin was so amazing that even the people who had material, you know, co-opted by Robin would still sit back and go, yeah, he's, he's amazing. I don't know what the hell it is, but he's an incredible talent that comes along once in a, once in a lifetime. Uh, he really was. I mean, you know, even people that were burned hard by that whole material acquisition thing uh, still had to say, this is an incredible talent. He was really, really generous. I mean, I, I asked him to do The Aristocrats. I asked him to do Satiristas. I asked him to do Green Room, which he couldn't do. And then when he saw the show... He, he called me and said, if you do it again, I want to do it. You know, he was always open for anything. The thing about Robin that I love so much is that if you were a comic and you were behind the scenes with Robin, he treated you like a peer. Didn't matter if you started comedy six weeks ago or if you'd been in the business for 50 years, he treated you like a peer. And Robin was a comedian through and through. He was the biggest movie star in the world for like a long time. The biggest movie star in the world. There's no place on the planet that didn't know Robin Williams, but he always considered himself a comedian first and foremost. And um, he loved doing set list and couldn't, he mentioned it on talk shows. He mentioned it in press. Uh, he was just so generous with his support of stuff that he respected and admired. Um, uh, I, I just loved him. I loved him. I, I was really you know, when, when, when he died, a friend of mine put it perfectly. He said, you know, hearing that Robin Williams is dead is like hearing Joy died. Because he really was like, I mean, I, he was so generous and so giving. And even the people that he wronged, he spent the rest of his life trying to make it up to them. Um, I just think we lost an extraordinary talent. Whether No matter what you think of him as a comedian or what you think of him as an actor or whatever, he was just so full of love and generosity. And his whole life was just all about making people smile. It, completely dysfunctional <laughs> but again what a great way to fill that hole chris rock genius i go way back with chris rock he he and i ended up on do you remember the morton downey jr show of course morton downey jr for your younger listeners was the granddaddy of them all he was the first right he was the he was jerry, jerry springer, springer on crack maury povich car crash tv interview show guy he was the first. Smoking cigarettes. Smoking cigarettes. His little logo was just a big mouth, just a big loud mouth. Um, and he was just all about, you know, pissing people off. So Morton Downey Jr., I had been around for just a handful of years. I, I mean, I was building a career, so I was a young comic. And um, even younger than I, 
was Chris Rock. And the two of us, through just random permutations, ended up representing young comedians on a Morton Downey Jr. episode. It was young comedians and old comedians. And the older comedians one was Pat Cooper. And I'm not sure the other one was. It might have been Jackie Mason. Or uh, I don't really remember. It might have been like Dick Capri. Not sure. But we ended up on this panel and we were told that the show was going to be about, you know, young com, young comedians, the younger generation of comedians and the older generation of comedians and, what, you know, what the differences are and, and, you know, all that. stuff. So we thought, OK, great. So Chris Rock and I are like, oh, we're going to be on TV as comedians. And uh, <laughs> Morton Downey Jr. introduces the show. They go, you know, four, three, two. <laughs> Morton Downey Jr. goes, the young generation of comedians and the older generation of comedians. They hate each other, and we're going to find out why right after this. <laughs> and we were all just went like, what? Well, we were just hanging out backstage, having a great time. And all of a sudden, he tried to create this fight between us all. It was hilarious. And Chris Rock and I both felt like we had like served in Nam together because at very early ages, we were on the Morton Downey Jr. show completely uh, attacked for uh, – yeah, it was, it was insane. Uh, so we go ba way back with that. And, and Chris was, you know, I was young when I started out. Um, Chris was even younger than I was. And when I saw Chris rock as a real young kid, I was like, this is insane. You, yeah, know? you thought it was insane because for those of you who don't know, Chris's first five minute routine was about Bill Cosby. Fat Albert and how it was a racist cartoon. Oh, it was unbelievable. But Chris is one of those guys who had a very clear vision about what he was not about from a very young age. And that's, that's really rare. Uh, I mean, I envy that. And, and, and Chris was, he was so clear on it. He was so clear that he was going to do comedy his own way. And he didn't give a fuck how long it took until he started getting the laughs. He just really worked the art, really worked the art. He was remarkable. Don Rickles. Don Rickles, one of the all-time greats. Rickles was like the Sex Pistols. Rickles was working in the 50s and the 40s when everything was, you know, completely anodyne, when show business was all about, you know, escapism and fluff, and he was... Unbelievable. I don't think he gets enough credit for being really, truly extraordinary. Jerry Lewis, same thing. Jerry Lewis was punk. Uh, even when you went to see Martin and Lewis, yeah, they did the songs, they did the routines, whatever, but then Jerry Lewis would just stage dive into the music stands and rip apart tables and chairs and he'd rip the set down. I mean, he really, truly was punk. And, and Rickles was like that, not quite as physical, but, but Rickles was just, he, he was fearless and he took a really hard road to take. He took the road that was the antithesis of everything that mainstream show business was about. And he came around to owning it, which uh, I just think he's phenomenal. And a sweet, 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 kind gentleman. John Stewart. John Stewart. What can I say about John Stewart? Another one who sort of right out of the gate was heads and shoulders above everybody uh, else. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who knew Jon Stewart in the early days that didn't predict tremendous success for him of one kind or another. I don't think they may have sort of zeroed in on the, the political uh, comedy or the political satire aspect of it, but he was incredible. I actually had him open for my, uh, when, I, when I taped a special for Showtime, 
I, I had him open and my manager at the time was like, who's this guy is opening? I go, this, this guy, is, he's just fantastic. I love him. He's, he's just a great comic and a, and, a, and a sweet, easygoing guy. And you know what we can say to him, stretch 10 minutes, it's not going to be a problem. We can say to him, pull back five minutes, it's not going to be a problem. This guy is great. And so my manager was like, I'd like to see his stuff. So I took him down to the comedy cellar to see Jon Stewart. And after the, the, seeing Jon Stewart, he just goes, <clears throat> listen, uh, are you sure you want him to open for you? <laughs> I said, yeah, why? He's, he's, he's really good. <laughs> and I go, I know, that's why I want him to open for me. He's like, yeah, but I, I don't know if it's the smartest thing to have somebody on who's this good before you tape your special. <laughs> he tried to talk me out of John Stewart opening for me because he thought John was so good he would blow me away. <laughs> and I said to him, no, that's exactly why I want him. I go, following John Stewart is a great challenge and it, it's going to bring out the best in me. And I, absolutely, I want this guy. And so, yeah. So John Stewart. Um, What's yeah. your opening act? Yeah. Steve Martin. Steve Martin. So I, I, I um, started working on Picasso at the La Panna Gilles, which was, um, it was. Don't use that kind of language. In <laughs> it started as a, um, a one act. And then Steve got involved with, was it Steppenwolf, I think? It was a Chicago um, theater company and, and, and blew it out to a full length show. And um, they were taking it to New York. It had run in Chicago and it had run here in Los Angeles. And I saw it here in Los Angeles. But then it was opening in New York in a, in a new incarnation where it had been rewritten several times and they were opening it in New York. And they were casting um, the role of Schmendeman. And I got a call for this audition and I go in and Steve Martin didn't know anything about me. He didn't know I was a comedian. He didn't know anything. He was just an actor going in for the role. And... Uh, I read the play and I had seen the play and I was just like, Schmendeman, of course. I go, Schmendeman is this classic Steve Martin bit. You remember this, the, the, the bit, um, I put women on pedestals so I could look up their dresses. You know the bit, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. It's that, it's that declamatory, you know, nonsensical, surreal, bizarre thing, but said with incredible conviction and, and self-importance. And I thought, Schmend that's Schmendeman. So I went in. And I basically did an impression of Steve Martin doing that bit, but with dialogue for Schmendeman. And I killed with it. And it was so easy to do because it was like, I'm just doing an impression. I'm just doing, you know, the Steve Martin thing. And Steve Martin came up after the audition and he goes, wow, you know, I, I, I never really saw the part that way at all. I was like, oh, God, now I'm just an asshole. <laughs> Oh my God, he had no intention that this was the exact same thing. <laughs> but um, but he remembered me and the director remembered me, whatever. And and so as the as the play went on, um, the guy who had originated in Chicago and done it in Los Angeles was opening it in New York for a month um, and he was playing Picasso and then he was leaving. So it came around for another round of auditions for the role of Picasso and I went in and read for that and got it. Um, but then because it had just changed a lot from its earlier incarnations, um, the rehearsal process with Steve Martin was filled with a lot of really cool collaboration and him changing a lot of things. And then when we went on tour with it, which was about a year, about two years later, I did it for like a year, and then a, a year went by, and then we did the national tour. And he said that, uh, and by the way, the, the two lead characters are Picasso and Einstein, and the actor playing Einstein was a genius. His name is Mark Nelson. He's one of the most exciting 
actors I've ever worked with. You know, when you step foot on a stage with somebody and you just go, I'm going to be 10 times better just because I'm on stage with this cat. You know, that's what he was like. He was just so great. And um, so when we did the national tour, um, they wanted him to do some press conferences and stuff in markets where they wanted to juice ticket sales. Uh, but Steve's a very shy guy. He really doesn't like <laughs> being out in public. This is more than like three or four people. He's like, I got to go. You know, he's very reserved, doesn't like big crowds, uh, only likes to be controlled situations. So he said he would only do the press conferences if myself and Mark Nelson did them with him. So I had an unbelievable amount of fun because we were in towns like Detroit, St. Louis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where all the press, which were like local TV, local radio, local newspapers, I had gigged in all those cities. So I knew the guys on the radio station. I knew the people who did the TV stations, whatever. So I got just as many questions as Steve Martin did. <laughs> and I remember doing their press conference and just seeing Steve Martin. I would get all these questions. Steve Martin would just go, <laughs> look around and go there. And then he found out, you know, why that was the case. And, uh, um, but yeah, he was tremendous. And, and there was one time we did a, we were doing a show in Providence, Rhode Island. And um, he had a limo drive him up from New York to Providence. And uh, we had the after party after the opening. And he's like, to me and Mark Nelson and a couple other people, he's like, come on, come on back in my limo. Let's go back to the city in my limo. And he got, got, got shit faced. And um, like he never gets drunk. He's just not that kind of guy. But he was so excited and elated because this, this was his first theater piece and so well received. And blah, blah. so he was really like happy. And uh, so on the car ride home, he just had us in stitches. And he was like, well, get back to my place. You come up to my apartment. Come up to my apartment. And I'm like, I don't know. It's like three in the morning. Um, I don't know. He's like, no, no, no. He goes, come on back to my apartment. He goes, you know why? Because my ex-wife lives next door. Because they had a whole floor. And then in the divorce, they put a wall down the middle. And she got half and he got half, right? He goes, I want my ex-wife to hear me having some goddamn fun for a change. Come on up and let's make some noise. So we actually had to excuse ourselves from going to hang out with Steve Martin because you're like, no, this isn't going to end well. <laughs> Another thing you turned down, do you regret that? No, I don't regret that one at all. Jonathan Winters. Wow, what can I say about Jonathan Winters? I mean, his place in the, in the comedy pantheon right there on Comedy Rushmore is... Uh, Unbelievable. And um, uh, our mutual friend, Dan Pastanak, introduced me to Jonathan Winters a number of years uh, ago. And um, uh, he was like, you know, nobody, Jonathan lives in Santa Barbara. His wife is ill. You're like, there's nothing for him to do in Santa Barbara. He's going stir crazy. And he loves when comedians come up and he can play. So, um, you know, there were a few people who used to do that quite a bit, from what I understand. I think Richard Lewis used to go up like every couple of weeks or something. But I think Gary Shandling used to go up. And comics would just go up just to hang out with him. And uh, he would explode. Steve, I mean, Jonathan Winters would just be like, <laughs> finally, you know, he would be like his happy dog at the dog park. Um, uh, so I met him and we chatted and we had a lot of laughs and he would do all these characters and things and he'd go around the house and you know his house is filled with essentially props and he would just pull them down and start playing with things John the winners and uh, uh and then uh i said um you know for jonathan's sake we got to bring rick overton up here because that's the guy he wants to play with so we went back again with jonathan with uh, rick overton and jonathan winners was like a little boy rick overton just blew him away and uh he loved watching Rick Overton do Sean Connery. And when we were all getting in the car and leaving, he'd be like, 
He, I swear to God, he looked like an eight-year-old. He just goes, do, do that Sean Connery thing again. Do that, <laughs> do that Sean Connery thing again. And his smile, just big, ruddy, just loved it. And he loved playing with him. And it was great because I could get him talk dirty. <laughs> it was so great. I had to get him to do all this stuff. Uh, uh, and he would just wander around. Like, we'd go to a restaurant, and he would just get up and start wandering from table to table and start doing bits and stuff with people. And they, you know, so many of them didn't even know who he was. They just thought this was some crazy guy coming up. But we were howling. Because these people didn't know that they were actually, you know, playing with Jonathan, the great Jonathan Winters. Anyhow, um, when it came time to do the green room, um, Jonathan was really, really, you know, he, he was used to hanging out with me a little bit. And so that made it a little bit more comfortable. And uh, Dan Pasternak said, you know what, if you get Robert Klein on the show, then I think Jonathan will feel really, really comfortable. So we did everything we could to make Jonathan feel safe so i put him on the show with robert klein and rick overton and uh one of my favorite moments on the show is when rick overton's doing something and you just see jonathan looking over at robert klein and pointing to rick overton going like you believe this guy you know like really impressed with his work um uh, it was just magical i mean he really was he went from being a crotchety old guy to being an eight-year-old playful child on the turn of a dime and um uh, the, one of the most interesting things about spending time with Jonathan was he was 85, 86, still dealing with father issues, still dealing with anger at, at his father and his mother. Had never let go of it. And it's what drove, fill that hole. It's what drove his entire life was his anger at his parents. Incredible. Yeah. Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith, great Andy Griffith story. He was shooting this movie. and um, The movie with Keanu Reeves. movie with Keanu Reeves uh, is called uh, Under the Influence. And he plays an alcoholic. It was written by the woman who wrote the very well-known book called The Cracker Factory. Um, uh, and she did a lot of work. She wrote a book called Children of Alcoholics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this was a story written by her. She knows very, you know, very much about the dynamic of alcoholics in a family. So Andy Griffith played this elder... Uh, uh, patriarch of a family and he's he is uh terribly alcoholic uh had four kids and each kid represented an archetype of what happens to children of alcoholics mine was the one who ran away i, I ran away and uh keanu was the one who was following in his footsteps uh the younger son uh the daughter played by susan hubley uh she was the one who you know the overachiever i everything she did had to you know that's what's going to make daddy happy and make him stop drinking you know uh, the younger daughter was, you know, she's the one who was pretending like you water down the liquor and all that sort of stuff. And so each of the kids was an archetype and it was just an examination of this relationship and this family. So Andy Griffith was playing a very heavy role. And um, uh, his his manager actually told me that, like, you know, he felt like this could be like, you know, the kind of this is the kind of work that he hasn't done since facing the crowd, you know back in the 50s or 60s 50s um uh and so he was really committed to doing like an amazing job here and really emotionally involved with this part and um my character leaves the family in the midwest to go to los angeles and his therapy for dealing with this stuff is trying he's trying to be a comedian talking about his life with his father so i got to do some material about having an alcoholic father which i didn't have so i actually had to create material for this character so i was writing material in character for you know something that i didn't relate to and i was actually doing it in clubs because i wanted to get a real 
feel for it. And like when it, when they shot those scenes, I, w- I would actually work with the extras on like, you know, don't just laugh at everything. Like, you know, let's I, I get all these textures in there and everything. So, um, so that was a cool experience. But anyway, so we get this one scene, which is me standing at the foot of Andy Griffith's, my father's bed after a near death experience here. And he's just recovering. And I'm the prodigal son that returned home. I don't really have a relationship with him anymore. And I'm standing at the foot of his bed. And the scene is where he's like, you know, what are you doing here? You know, it's like, I came back to see how you were, you know? And he's like, oh yeah, how's it going for you out there? You, you David Letterman yet? You, you know, minimizing all that sort of stuff that, you know, the father would do. Very heavy scene, a lot of emotional stuff on both sides. And we start, start shooting the scene and we, we get this connection you know, like eye to eye with him. Like just, we never broke eye contact the whole time. About three quarters of the way through the first take, they're like, cut. I got to adjust some lights. I got to adjust some lights. So we just stay here looking in each other's eyes. We're trying not to break the moment while they're adjusting lights real quietly around us in this really delicate place, right? And as we're waiting, he's looking at me like this, and he just goes, you're a comedian, huh? I'm saying, yeah. He goes, let me ask you something. I said, Sure. You have a poo-poo your pants while you're on stage? And then the director's like, okay, let's go. <laughs> and they go to the scene. And so now I'm in this, <laughs> get into this really emotional father-son mythic moment thing here with that question looming. It was hilarious. And then he told me the story afterwards. Because, you know, he's a stand-up. Um, a great classic album called What It Was Was Football. And um, uh, he was a stand-up and he worked at the tent circuit. Uh, the country fair circuit, you know, with Jim Neighbors and 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 all the country western singers or whatever. And uh, he was working someplace in Texas and went over the Mexican border to have lunch, came back to do the show and had the runs during his show. And he was just shitting down his leg the whole show. He said, like, luckily there had been like a pig show on earlier and there was hay all over the thing. So all I had to do was just kick it around and everything and nobody knew it was me. <laughs> 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 this is the greatest comedy story I've ever heard. It's fantastic. <laughs> All right, wrapping up. Your proudest moment in show business. This. Industry standard with Barry Katz. It doesn't get any better than this. Your career definitely isn't the shitter if that's the case. <laughs> exactly. No, what's your proudest moment? Oh, God, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. I don't know. I think... I think my proudest moment is is uh, my proudest most recent moment. It would probably be the green room. I feel like I'm very proud of the green room because the green room is the only time after all these years of being in the business that I feel like I'm authentic. I'm authentically myself on that show, uh, and and I feel like that was that's huge. So you're phoning it in here. Mm, I'm kind of myself here too, but. Um, no, That's I'm, why I said the, the industry standard with Barry Katz. No, I, that was a big deal for me. It was a big deal for me to let go of everything, to get to that Zen place of unselfconscious self-awareness and to not care about anything and to just really be in the moment, which I wanted everybody else to be. So I felt like the only way I could do that is by being there myself. And um, I, so I feel like that was a bit of a... Uh, I, I was pretty proud of the fact that I, I was able to not care how fucked up I might be how shitty I might look, how unfunny I might be at any given moment, how awkward I might be, to literally not care about any of it, to just be, to be genuine and authentic in that setting. I, that, that's something that's all too rare in my experience. 
biggest disappointment in show business and industry how you standard with Bearcats. <laughs> <laughs> now you're talking. Biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. Well, I don't know about the second part of that question, but my big, my biggest disappointment in show business is the fact that I can't earn a living off of all the work that I did that I'm really proud of. For various circumstances, like the aristocrats is tied up in a legal limbo, so I can't make any money off of that. Green Room is tied up in uh, a corporate limbo, so I can't make any money off of that. Satiristas is tied up in a, a, a corporate limbo, and I can't make any money off of that. And um, uh, and the fact that I've been, I think Setlist is a work of genius, which I can say because it was created by Troy Conrad, not myself. Uh, I, I think Setlist is a work of genius. It's pure. It's a beautiful love letter to comedy and the art of creation. Uh, and uh, the series we did for it in the UK is, I, I really am so proud of it. Uh, and I cannot believe that it's not gotten a deal here in the States. I just can't believe it. And it, it, it's frustrating beyond. It's almost like it's paralyzing me from moving on. I've got a lot of other things I'm working on as well, but I kind of feel like I'm, I, I, I'm not going to let go of this because it's just, it, there's something inherently wrong with the fact that this isn't on television here in America. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's kind of fucking me up a little. <laughs> well, but there's always tomorrow. That's, I'm waiting for that call. And I'm pretty sure it's going to come after the industry standard with Barry Katz. You said there was a lottery ticket. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. That's one of the tickets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, last question. What advice do you have for the audience out there who's. If you get a chance, fuck somebody that Barry's fucked. That is so great. He really, he really warms them up for you and he sets the bar so low that you feel like a million bucks. You know, I have to share with you, you started saying that. I'm like, God, that sounds very flattering. And then you came back to the original story, which was gut-wrenching and broke my legs see, again. I found, see, I found a beginning, middle, and full then. Circle, around, full circle. Full huh? circle. I'm a structure guy, Barry. I'm a structure guy. Completely twisted me into a balloon animal there. That was awful. <laughs> Let me try again. I've never been in the interview where I've actually asked a question more than once in a row again. But uh, <laughs> So what advice do you have for the young person who's going through stuff in the town to Maybe there's a tragedy happening in their life or whatever it is, but they have a dollar and a dream. They want to get to the next level and to have the kind of opportunities and the kind of great things that have happened in your career. Fear nothing. Fear not. Be fearless. Be fearless. And yes, and. Be fearless and yes, and everything. That, that is, that's my second piece of My first piece of advice is don't listen to anybody's advice. And I, I'm not saying that as a gag. I genuinely mean it. Just process people's advice. Do what you have to do with it, but don't think that anybody knows anything more than you do because it's all a crapshoot and we're all making it up as we go along. That was a big revelation for me to realize that most of the world really, truly in their darkest, right before they go to sleep, they're really afraid that everybody's going to find out they're full of shit and they don't know what they're doing. That's, that is a universal, I truly believe it. Uh, so don't listen to anybody's advice. Um, having said that, Really, just be fearless. There is nothing to be afraid of. Don't play it safe. Playing it safe is the the playing it safe is 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 death itself. So whatever your dream is, whatever your risks are, whatever there is around you, just look at everything and say, Am I coming from fear with this decision? 
or am I coming from fearlessness in this decision? And that's not always easy to identify. So that's all I have to say. And that's life as well as um, show business. Really, it's unbelievable how often we come from fear. And um, I gave you one example about the, the Tonight Show for me. Like how much more could I have gotten out of doing it than I protected by not doing it? I'll never forget that. Awesome. Paul Provenza, a force today. Incredible. You had a lot to offer, very inspirational, and I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on John Gusto from Placerville, California. Congratulations, John. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, we landed on Gina's Cackle, October 7, 2015. Heading reads, Interruptions, Tangents, and Cold Opening. Two out of five stars. Gina writes, Please let your guest speak. Stop interrupting with your crazy tangents. Enough with the cold open. Not shocking this guy is Jay Moore's manager, who constantly interrupts his guests as well. <laughs> Drop your ego and let your guest tell the story. It interrupts the flow. Stop saying for those of you who don't know. Well, Gina, thank you for the constructive criticism. I appreciate it, and you are rewarded. Congratulations. All right, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, please tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders walk you to fame you'll get all the money drive that fancy car all the people love you cause you're going for life is for the dreamers they have all to gain it's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune.
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.